0: You're listening to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. My name is Jeff Milo, the host and producer of this podcast, and thank you for joining us. Rochelle Riley, award-winning journalist who was a nationally syndicated columnist for the Detroit Free Press for nearly a quarter century, advocating for improved race relations, literacy, education, community building, and children through her writing on those pages but before her esteemed career here in detroit she was in louisville uh, for much of the 90s as an associate editor and columnist for the louisville courier journal but she has also appeared on npr msnbc and cnn and in the fall of 2018 she published the burden african americans and the enduring impact of slavery that was her most recent Book, but now she has a brand new book, which came out this week actually. Today, Rochelle Riley is joining us to talk about this new book titled That They Lived, and it came out this week via Wayne State University Press, and it is an eye opening history book for all ages, as it focuses on the formative moments of the lives of icons of Black history, like Muhammad Ali, Rosa Parks, Frederick Douglass, but also. Barbara Jordan, the first African-American woman elected to the House of Representatives, as well as Bessie Coleman, the most famous African-American aviator in history. And then also Stevie Wonder, of course, Thurgood Marshall, Martin Luther King Jr. And the chapters focus on the formative moments of their youth, whether that be between the age of 12 or 22. She finds those moments in their lives, those fateful circumstances that set them on the path to becoming or achieving the things that they remain revered for for the ages, but zeroing in on those moments of their youth not only makes this so relatable to young readers, but reminds adult readers that all of us were once children. And to augment the visceral poignancy of that, Rochelle Riley collaborated with photographer Christy Smith Jones. And with her daughter Lola and uh, Rush O'Reilly's grandson Caleb, Christy Smith-Jones was able to recreate some of the most iconic and often breathtaking images from our history books of the famous folks detailed in these pages and allow Lola and Caleb to stand in as models in full costume. So when you see these photos side by side with the original images from history, it is definitely impactful and just makes this such a magnificent book overall truly for all ages. Rochelle Riley is here on the podcast to talk about That They Lived. I just think that opening this book and reading through it, uh, it's intended for maybe audiences younger than myself, but I thought that it was such a breath of fresh air to approach the history and sort of bring these famous icons but to sort of zero in on these sort of microcosm moments in their time, specifically when they were children. But can you tell me about the inspiration behind that they lived?
1: I am thrilled to do that, but I should first tell you that it is meant for all audiences of all ages. Mm -hmm. I am uh, hopeful for two things. One is that we teach children of all colors and backgrounds that uh, they can be whatever they want, because every famous, every important person was once a child. But I also want to remind parents that when they're not teaching their children about these folks, they are helping to sort of perpetuate this myth that uh, this excellence did not exist, this achievement did not exist among African-Americans. So I can tell you the inspiration story is its literally one of the best moments of my life. About four years ago, almost four years ago, uh, it was Black History Month of 2017, Uh And I was trolling on. No, I shouldn't use trolling when I'm talking about social media. I was strolling on Twitter (laughs) and saw these amazing photographs of this little girl dressed and totally made up as these iconic African-American women. Mm -hmm. And they were posted every day. And I found myself looking for them and waiting for them and then following this young mom who was doing it. So um, at the end of the month, I said, that was pretty amazing. And then I just went on with life. Well, when she did it again in 2018, uh, I was in the middle of doing promotions for um, my previous book, The Burden, uh, African-Americans and the Enduring Impact of Slavery. And she was doing it again. And I went, oh, my God, here she is again. And these are amazing And I went on Facebook and found her and called her and I said, you know, I love that you're doing this. And she talked to me about why she was doing it and what she was teaching her daughter, Lola, who when Mm -hmm. she started was four and at that point was five. And I said, you know, it's wonderful that you're showing people these faces. They need to know these women, but I would love for them to know their stories. I'd like to talk to you about maybe writing their stories to go with the pictures. And she said, oh, my God. I don't know. And I said, no, really, it would be great. And so I got on a plane and I flew to Seattle and got in a car and drove to Kent, Washington and sat down with her and her mom and her kids and talked to her about this. And I convinced her that this would be something that I think would be beneficial. And she absolutely agreed because it was the reason that she did it in the first place. Mm
0: -hmm. And I don't know if we mentioned by by name, but this is, of course, uh, Christy Smith Jones, Christy Smith Jones.
1: And that one in the center is one of the first ones that, let me turn this the right way, the Mm -hmm. first ones that she did, and that's little Lola dressed as Rosa Parks in an iconic photo, so everybody knows that one. Mm -hmm. Most people know this one, whoops, this way, this one, because (laughs) this is Thurgood Marshall. Uh And a lot of people, because of the robe, got that. Almost every Black person I I know, and many white people know, that this is W.E.B. Du Bois. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the pictures are varied, and some of them you know immediately. When you see... Uh, For instance, Lola as Aretha Franklin in the Mm -hmm. book, you know immediately who that is. When you see her as Fannie Lou Hamer, you know immediately Mm -hmm. who that is. Mm -hmm. But um, some of them you may not know, uh, even though they're famous. And uh, I wasn't looking for hidden figures. I was looking to celebrate the ones that everybody knows. And every Black History Month, you know, you do reports on. But I wanted them to be more than posters. Mm -hmm. I wanted people to know what life was like for them when they were 9 or 10 or 11 years old. Mm
0: -hmm. There was sort of a kind of a campaign of yours that you wanted to to sort of on a mission almost. Uh, you write b- very beautifully in the opening of this and sort of the preface about how these figures shouldn't remain hidden or rather let's stop focusing on hidden figures and let's keep them from being hidden. Can you talk about that? That's sort of One America, One History, I think it was.
1: About 10 years ago, I was bold enough to announce that I'm going to start this work called One America, One History and change the textbooks and change the curriculum and change everybody's syllabuses so that we will learn the complete history of America, which I think will help with race relations. Because again, there's this myth that African-Americans are formerly enslaved folks who you know, can only do so much. And what is really true is that African-Americans who were formerly enslaved, despite that, despite it being illegal to teach them to read, despite their not having any capital or any help, still manage to achieve and become equal in this society. And yet there's still this ability to fight that. And and part of that is the way we teach. Part of that is the textbooks that don't deal with slavery, that don't tell you about most of these folks. And that's why Carter G. Woodson created Negro History Week, which became Black History Month. Mm -hmm. But I feel like Black History Month uh, gives short shrift to how we ought to be studying all of American history, Mm -hmm. the things that African-Americans have done all year.
0: I wanted to talk about just little moments in the book that I found so powerful. And then I'd love to hear some of the things that you found powerful in terms of bringing them to life. But even just on page one, when we meet young Muhammad Ali, and he's 12 years old. And it's such, for me, I just found that to be such a visceral image. uh, Because when we think, or when most of us think of Muhammad Ali, we see The famous images, uh, the Sonny Liston fight, and and all of that. But just to imagine him as a 12-year-old looking for his stolen bike, 10 years from now, he's going to be world famous. But that moment, I loved zeroing in on that moment. And you do that with so many icons in this book. And I just can't bring into words how I found that to be kind of invigorating. But can you talk about that and what that was like as a writer?
1: Well, you know, as a journalist for a long time and someone who loved reporting, uh, even when I became a columnist, I still believed in reported columns. I knew because I used to live and work in Louisville and covered him for a while and got to spend time with him as we raised money for the Muhammad Ali Center that is there now. The story of how he got into boxing is is like just folklore there where he went to this showcase with his friend and they left their bikes outside and his was a brand new bike, which is a big deal, you mm-hmm. know, for him, his parents to get him a bike and he came out and it was stolen and he said he was going to whoop the person who took it. And they said, you need to go down to that gym uh, in the basement and look for this officer who will tell you, you know, what he does with this boxing that he's doing with these kids. And, you know, here's this skinny kid who's mad as hell and, he goes down and there's this officer who's running a boxing gym. And he said, if you're going to beat somebody up, you better learn how to do it. Mm-hmm. And that became his singular focus from that moment forward. Uh, when, when you talk about somebody deciding what their life is going to be, that's what he did training before and after school. You know, the, 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 the stories that, you know, everybody in Louisville knows of him running around the park, you know, near his house in these steel toed heavy boots and, and, and just the work that he put into becoming someone great and then going to the Olympics and winning the gold in 1960 and then, you know, him standing there proclaiming, I shook up the world when he beat Sonny Liston right. to become you know, one of the youngest heavyweight champions ever. Not the youngest, I think. All of that, all of that came from that moment when he was 12 years old. Mm-hmm. So I tried to find those moments for each of these folks. Mm-hmm. And they range from, you know, literally Bessie Coleman deciding that she wanted to be an aviator because they were told, you know, women don't fly. And she said, well, these French women do. So she went to France and she came back to America and became an aviation, um, an aerialist, you know, aviation pilot who did aerial tricks to raise money. Mm-hmm. And that was how she died. But she died doing what she loved because she refused to let somebody decide that, you know, these are the, these are the jobs you can have as a black woman in America. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There were so many of those. I think for me, one of the best is Stevie Wonder. You know, when you think about all of the, you know there there are judges and there are iconic civil rights figures like rosa parks there are all these folks but the thing that got to me was stevie wonder because everybody knows his career started when he was young mm-hmm. but to be an 11-year-old and blind and your mom knowing that you're not just special in her eyes but you have something really special and taking you to Barry gordy and saying here take my son i i couldn't even imagine you know you, you can't see all of these people who are walking around you can't but you could hear everything. You can hear the music. You can hear the the beat from Studio A. You can hear Barry Gordy's voice saying, Oh, I think we've got something here. Mm-hmm. To 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 have that be the beginning of an iconic life as a composer mm-hmm. and singer. Mm-hmm. So so those were the moments I was looking for.
0: And I love this because and again I'm sort of harping on what we usually anticipate when we think of nonfiction history books. They they do zero in on those cinematic moments. Um, they do zero in on, on Muhammad Ali in the ring or, or Rosa Parks with the famous sort of mugshot. And those are humongous moments in their lives. But what I really loved about this is that for whether it is a 12 year old who's reading it, you're, you're making it so much relatable by showing them that these, these folks were children once. And, even, and again, family, parents, even myself can read this because we were all children once. Uh, yeah. Was that a big part of the inspiration?
1: That was the inspiration. Yeah. I, I thank Christy all the time and she won't do any press. She's done. She, she gave me some great photos. She's like, I said, well, maybe you can just do some Zoom calls. She said, no, nope, no, nope, not interested. Um, so on, be, on her behalf, because this started with her photographs, I want to say that what she decided to do to teach her daughter about these women, that she would have um, Lola embody them, you know, to, to make sure she knew that they were once young. Um, That was what I wanted people to remember. You know, I know when I wanted to be a writer, I was eight years old. That's not the type of thing that people talk about or that you, you know, mention. But now I think about that because suppose I'd wanted to do something else or suppose, you know, on my way to being a writer, I decided that I'd met some nurse and decided to be a nurse. Mm -hmm. My whole life would be different. So um, it's great to look back and see how quickly something can change. Like Barbara Jordan, one of the most amazing orators and civil rights leaders and the first Southern African-American woman to be elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh-huh. Every kid should know that. Uh-huh. And, and being a first means you don't have to ever have another first. Uh-huh. There will never be a first black woman in the house because she did it. Uh-huh. And, and the, the, the sooner we get to the point where there are no firsts, the better off America and America's race relations will be. But she was a student at Phyllis Wheatley High School, and she was going to be a music teacher. Uh-huh. It was already planned but she heard this black female attorney give this powerful speech and she decided to be an attorney and a civil rights leader. If she had not heard that woman, she'd be someplace teaching piano, yeah. you know, but instead that changed her life when yeah. she was 15 years old. So that that's the kind of thing I want people to pay attention to. There will be something that happens to you in these formative years and everybody like has different views on when your formative years are. Mm-hmm. I think they are whenever they are for you. Mm-hmm. Remember, you're deciding what you want to do. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was when I was eight. For somebody else, it might be when they're 16. Mm-hmm. Um, for Muhammad Ali, who was Cassius Clay, it was when he was 12. But when you see how that happens, and then you pay attention to what's happening in your life, you may find your path and your future.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was the word I was going to use, Rochelle, is formative. Formative yes. moments. I love that about that. I do want to get to that in a second, but I just wanted to jump back a little bit with Uh, Just to talk a little bit more about the collaboration with uh, Christy as a writer-reporter, kind of working directly with a photographer, was that sort of a new change of pace for you? Was that a distinguishing feature based on other projects you worked on? Or can you just talk about other things you enjoyed about it?
1: As a project, it was very, very new. Mm -hmm. As a journalist, no, I would work with photographers who I'd go out on stories with and they would you know, bring the great pictures that in some cases I couldn't write a thousand words to, to be, you know, but that collaboration is very quick and it's daily and it's, you know, you move on to the next sure. thing. For this, We knew we were capturing something that was going to be lasting. That would be in something that would be there forever. Mm-hmm. So, um, she took it as seriously as I did. And we had some of the pictures because we, because we had the ones that Lola had already done. Mm-hmm. So the reason we went out there was, um, uh, I said, well, I want to do these. And she said, and I said, and we can do lots of books. You know, we can do one with sports stars and we can do one with scientists. And she said, oh, no, I'm not doing another one. This will be it. And I went, oh, well, we have all these pictures of Lola, but we can't leave little boys out. So maybe we'll do some with boys. Would Would you just because she was done taking pictures and she said, would you would you do some of boys? And she said, well, we'd have to find a boy. And I said, "Uh uh-huh, I've got a boy. Uh Um, I flew to Dallas and I got my grandson. Mm -hmm. And we flew back to um, Seattle and uh, spent a weekend, four days, doing a photo shoot. And it was really great because (laughs) we'd do a half an hour photo shoot, then he could play Fortnite for a half an hour.
0: (laughs) I have to say, your grandson uh, seems like a, a natural photography model when you look at the image in the book. Doing his tie like Muhammad Ali, uh, or any other image, there's like a power in his eyes. I don't know. I just found it very cap, very compelling. So.
1: Well, I think he's the most gorgeous boy in America. But I can tell you that both he and Lola, there was something about the way they did this, and Mm -hmm. and some of it was instruction. Like, (laughs) and some of it was he really likes Fortnite. So he said we can finish (laughs) this really quickly if you look at this picture and you do what he's like Duke Ellington, you know, sitting at the piano. And he sat down and he's looking and I said, I bet you want that skin to go with it um, with the skins and the weapons and all this. I bet you want that skin to go in that next round. And he went, you know, like, <laughs> OK, yes, let's get this done. Um, But the one that was really great for me was when he did um, Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. Um, We showed him the picture and said, we want to take a picture of you leaning on the podium like this man. Mm -hmm. And there was just something about that moment. He just did it. Mm -hmm. And I I know that, you know, they studied King in elementary school and then I didn't give him lectures about these folks. We just really wanted him to focus on what that was. Mm -hmm. But King, he knew he was someone who died for civil rights. Mm -hmm. And so he literally, he stood there and he looked off into the distance and it was like, Christy said, we have it. Yeah, And I, that was amazing. So th- there were really nice moments while we were doing this too.
0: Yeah. Where uh, the the gravity, uh, you know, we have, to, we have to imagine that children can imagine the gravity of what they're doing. Obviously he would want to go play Fortnite, but in the moment of it, you can see it in, in his eyes, uh, whether sure. it's Frederick Douglass or anything. It seems like he did tune into that important historical frequency. Yeah. which is just another compliment to this book. I think it's such a great book to be putting out right now. Thank you. Um, going back to formative moments, I just wanted to ask about, especially in journalism, I think that when we think of columnists, I think we can think too, off, too often that they are just about sort of uh, provocative opinions or picking political fights. But when I was much younger, you came on my radar as a columnist here in Detroit because while I was a high schooler getting into reading the newspaper and here was a columnist who was actually talking about public schools and education. Uh, can you talk about that as priority for you? Because that has always stood out to me about you and your work.
1: Well, I, I can tell you that that begins when I became a columnist. I was actually on the ladder to become a I was a news executive on the way to becoming a publisher and because there aren't many black female publishers and aren't many black female editors of newspapers, a lot of was riding on this for a lot of people, except me. I had adopted a little girl. She was two years old and I was spending a lot of time at work and a lot of time out of town. And so one day um, I called in as I, I called in every day, but one day I called and I had to call early. So I didn't call it bedtime to sing a moon river like I usually do. I had to call at dinnertime because we had night meetings. So I'm in Virginia calling home to, you know, talk to her. And her nanny answered the phone. And I said, I have to talk to her early tonight because we've got this, these meetings that go from 7 to 11. So I won't be able to put her to bed. And she said, well, let me tell you something first. Something happened. And I went, oh, God, what happened? Do I need to come home? She said, oh, no, 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 not anything like that. I just wanted you to know that I made her a burger and fries for dinner. And her eyes got real big. And she said, I didn't know you could get this at home. And I thought, okay, you know what? I'm coming home anyway. And I came back and I quit. And uh, I said, you know what? My nanny is raising my daughter. My daughter didn't know you can get a hamburger in your own house, and I I need to change my life. Mm -hmm. He said, well, you can't quit. And I don't want you to stop being an editor. So why don't we make up a job for you? And I said, well, okay, give it a shot. He said, what would you like to do? And I tell people this story all the time. I will never be able to tell you why I said this, but I said, I'd like to be a columnist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He said, okay. (laughs) Let's let's give it a shot. And I literally my first column called the entire city of Louisville to task for not having something to honor Muhammad Ali, the most famous man in the world, the most famous man to come from Louisville, who had never had the recognition at home that he deserved because he was the Louisville lip from a southern city. And they didn't really like him. Mm -hmm. That column embarrassed people so much that the next day the mayor called from the Democratic National Convention. He said, I read the column. You're right. We have to do something. So then I got a front page story out of it. Wow. Mayor says that we're behind doing something for Ali. And uh, it, it wasn't just my column. People had been trying for years to do something. His wife, the amazing Lani Ali, had been trying to get a museum mm-hmm. in his honor. Well, between the, the reinvigoration that that column helped do, um, we raised $80 million to build a Muhammad Ali Center. Wow! And if that's your first column, it's like, OK, where do you go from there? <laughs> <laughs> but that was how I got to be a columnist. And once I did that, I realized that you can write a column that changes yeah. things, that make people act. And yeah. that's what I, not with every column, but yeah. I don't believe in navel length columns. And I might have written one or two, but those are the ones that I call, okay, I have to write a column. It's due at five o'clock. I don't know what I'm going to write. So I'm going to write about what I had for breakfast. <laughs> what a waste of space. <laughs> So I would try to write something every time that would make people think about something that needed to be improved or changed or thought about.
0: Truly, which also sort of ties into the spirit of this book. And maybe you can talk about this whether I want I'd love to know some of the formative experiences in your life because when we think of journalists, we might think of the beat reporters who are, you know, covering a, a crime scene or the courts or the city council meetings and they it's the five W's that they put in the morning. But the columnist, especially you, had the opportunity to approach each article that you wrote or column that you wrote by saying, why isn't this story being told? And then opening it up, and that's what I loved about it. But could you talk about that, and then maybe any other formative experiences? If you were in this book, I'd love to hear your formative experience.
1: Well, I, I should first say that it helps that I treated my column the same way I treated stories. I was a reporter before I was a columnist, mm-hmm. and, um, my columns would have who what when, where and why. Of they course. just wouldn't be in that order. Yes and it would not be at the top. But, but for me, um, when I was eight years old and I used to write uh, poetry, and then I decided I wanted to write stories. Mm-hmm. And then I decided I wanted to actually write about what I was seeing, you know like mm-hmm. <laughs> writing stories about the neighbors and you know nobody would want to see me coming because oh God she wants to be in people's business. <laughs> I like being in people's business. <laughs> but but for me, the formative moment was being in a small town of 10,000 people. There were 10,000 people there when I was growing up, Tarboro, North Carolina. There are 10,000 people there now. And my high school English teacher decided just all of a sudden, Gene Harris said, I'm going to teach a new class on news writing so we can learn what journalists do. And I thought that's how I can make a living as a writer. Wow. And. That was the moment I said, that's what I'm gonna do. I, I probably still have that green textbook that says news writing, mm-hmm. uh, beginning news writing or whatever it is from mm-hmm. years ago. But it was the first time that I realized this is a way that I can help myself, mm-hmm. take care of myself, raise money for myself, make a living mm-hmm. doing something I love to do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I encourage everybody to do that. I've done that with college students, with high school students, with adults who don't know better. Do not spend 40 years doing something that you hate. Find what you love to do and find a way to make a living doing it. And that was the eye-opening moment for me that I can do that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and be a writer. And then I became a reporter and then I became a columnist and now I'm a writer again.
0: Yeah. Also, I'd love to hear, uh, I mean, before I let you go, I'd love to hear just a couple of things that and folks can find this book. Uh, it's coming out in February. And uh, But there are some other things you're working on and just a couple more questions there. But do you want to talk about uh, this series, I think, that just sort of came onto my radar recently? It's I think it's called Undefeated Through City of Detroit.
1: I am very excited yeah. about that. So let me just tell people that after spending almost 20 years as a newspaper columnist uh, at the Free press and doing everything I wanted to do, I'm in the Michigan Journalism Hall of Fame and the North Carolina Journalism Hall of Fame, had a piece of a Pulitzer, won all these things. I said, that's enough of that. What else am I going to actually do with life? Because you only get to do so many things. Mm -hmm. And I love the arts. And I had lunch with the mayor and said, uh, Mayor Mike Duggan of Detroit, and I said, I'm getting ready to leave the free press. And I'm trying to decide what I want to do next. And what I really want to do is to find a building and uh, create the Detroit Black Repertory Theater, because we're the largest city in America that doesn't have a Black Repertory Theater. Wow. All he heard was the word theater. He said, theater, you're interested in the arts? You like the arts? And I went on and on about how much I love the arts, you know, going to Broadway regularly to see shows and singing show tunes on demand and being a photographer and an artist. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I need a director of arts and culture. I've wanted to do that since, you know, the beginning of my term. And I can't get anybody to really focus on that. And I said, and that's a darn shame that we would have a city that's the Paris of the Midwest doesn't have one. And he said, well, you should consider that. And I said, I think I would like to do that. So, I figured I'd get another call from somebody to ask me questions. That, well, I got a call the next day saying, Welcome to the city of Detroit. Ah. <laughs> and I became the director of arts and culture. And my job is to oversee the city's investment in the arts, the nurturing of our creative economy, which is as strong as any in the country. Mm-hmm. And people should know that nationally, the creative arts contributes more to the gross national product than the auto industry. I think that's mm-hmm. true regionally, too. And I plan to find out. Mm-hmm. But um, the thing that I'm doing now is because of COVID, making sure people still know how great we are. So we just announced the um, Undefeated campaign. We will be undefeated by COVID, and it's going to be a year-long celebration of arts, and culture, and Detroit's contributions to American excellence. Mm-hmm. You can find out all about it beginning February 1st on the um, ACE page, Arts, Culture, and Entrepreneurship, which yeah. is my partner. Um, yeah. That's DetroitMI.gov uh, slash ACE or just go to DetroitArtsAndCulture.com. Yeah. And it will tell you that uh, we're going to have monthly showcases of everything. And next week, we're going to have the Black History Month kick off everything, starting with February 1st, the mayor interviewing Alice Randall, the author of Black Bottom
0: I just finished that book. It's incredible. Isn't that awesome? It's so, incredible. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, and then I, I guess one last question just for fun is, uh, after completing this book, That They Lived, have you entertained uh, the thought or consideration in your head of a future where you do another project that is very history-centric. Uh, you really, this you seem like taking on a historical narrative as, as a writer was a was a great fit for you.
1: Well, I am doing two things right now. Because of the times that we're living in, uh, The Burden, my first book, uh, has become even more popular mm-hmm. and is selling almost as many copies as that they live. Mm-hmm. And if you could see my dining room table, you would see the chapters of my novel sort of just uh, spread out around uh, yeah. it, in a circle. I have a circular table. In this circle, it's each chapter. It's it's not so much an historical novel as part memoir, part novel, because it's set in 1975, but it's uh, it, it's my life's work. It's mm-hmm. If I only do one book, this is my Harper Lee moment. This is my To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. I've been working on it since 2008. Oh, boy. <laughs>
0: which is just another another good thing to sign off is patience and fortitude is important books take a long time the craft of writing takes a long time so rochelle Riley, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast it has been a pleasure to talk to you
1: thank you so much this was awesome and i appreciate being invited and you can find out anything about my books at RochelleRiley.com.
0: we will have a link to that in the show notes and more information about this book thanks again rochelle thank you And that was Rochelle Riley, who, towards the end of our chat, spoke about her new role as the Director of Arts and Culture for the City of Detroit. We'll have links in the show notes that will lead you to more information about, of course, this book, That They Lived, as well as more information on the Undefeated campaign that she mentioned through the City of Detroit rochelle riley it was a privilege to get to chat with her an award-winning columnist and author and now working with the arts for the city we appreciate her being here and we appreciate you listening to a little too quiet it is the ferndale library podcast and it's made possible by the friends of the ferndale library you could rate review or subscribe to the show or just tell a friend or you can visit ferndalefriends.org for more information on how to support my name is jeff milo and i thank you for listening